Hi, I'm Brock Goodall, lead pastor at Haven Campus Church. I'm excited that you've chosen to connect with our podcast today. And as we get started, remember, God is for you and he's got a plan for your life. Are you ready? Let's go. Morning, everyone. Welcome again to another week of the pursuit of God. This is the uh, sermon series that we're looking at uh, each week here, this term at Haven Campus Church. So the idea is, is that every week we look at a different character of the Bible. We do that because the different characters each tell a different story. And the fact that they are so diverse, it really speaks to how we as human beings approach God. Because we are diverse, we are different people. So by looking at different people's connections with God, we're able to identify with certain parts and learn lessons from others. So, so far we've looked at a whole bunch. Last week, for those who were here, can you remember the character that we looked at? David, right? Very, very, very popular, popular guy in the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible story, you would have no doubt heard of David. If it's new to you, then we'll do a little recap today. But we're looking specifically today at a different character. And he's kind of like the anti-character of who David was. Any guesses? We've kind of already said it in the service so far, so points for listening. Who are we looking at? We're looking at Saul. When we first planned this out as a preaching team, uh, I thought that we were talking about Saul in the New Testament. You know, the guy that turns from Saul into Paul? We are not. We're looking at Old Testament Saul. And it would have been easier to look at uh, New Testament Saul because there's a bit of a happy ending there. Um, Old Testament Saul sucks. As an, like, he is not a good guy. And he, the frustrating thing is, is he actually didn't start out that way. As we're going to see in the story, he started out really brilliant, a really incredible person. But for some reason, which we're going to have a look at, something happens and his life goes off the rails. So what we saw of David last week, the character that owns his stuff and tries to turn his life around with God, Saul is the opposite of that. But before we get into Saul, you're going to need a Bible this morning. If you've got one with you, we'd love for you to take it out. If you haven't got a Bible with you, that's not a problem. You should see some white ones like this on the seats around you. If you're not sure how to use a Bible, that's totally fine too. We'll read out a page number so you can jump there like a pro. We're on page 229. 229. We're looking in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we'll give you the verse shortly. 1 Samuel chapter 8, page 229. But first, I want to talk a little bit about stubbornness. When I was doing research for this, I thought it would be great to find the definition of stubbornness. And this is what I found. Having or showing dogged, which of course we have to look that up in a second, uh, having or showing dogged determination uh, not to change one's attitude or position on something, and here's the kicker, especially in spite of good reason to do so. So, a stubborn person is the individual who receives golden counsel and does nothing with it. Wonderful. So, I had to look at dogged. Am I saying that right, by the way? Dogged? Is that it? It's not dogged, is it? It's dogged. Yes, good. So, that means having or showing tenacity and grim persistence. So, a person that is stubborn, uh, probably not the most listening of people. I'm pretty confident if I was to ask you the question, do you know someone in your life who is stubborn, you would be able to very quickly think of a person. Even maybe mentioning the idea of somebody who is stubborn, Luke Pengelly turns, looks over his shoulder, poor move, my friend, poor move. I saw it, I was watching. Never look at another person and identify them as stubborn because they, here's the kicker, it's easy to identify stubbornness in others, but very difficult to identify it in yourself, 
right? It's so easy to see other people acting stubborn, but to see it in ourselves is a totally different story because if we were to look at ourselves, we would have to be vulnerable, and that's tricky for some of us. I'm sure that it will take you as a surprise, but I was a very stubborn child. Yes, quite a surprise. Um, in, in preparation for this, um, Cindy actually, I said to Cindy, do you have any good stubborn stories of me? Which is like opening a can of worms, right? Uh, she gracefully said, um, I'm going to call your mum and find out if there was any stories from your childhood. Because uh, it seems less hurtful because it was happened so long ago and we can blame it on youth. Anyway, so apparently mum had a bucket load of stories, but I should share just two with you. Uh, I liked looking at things to do with cars. I didn't really understand the mechanics of them, still do not, but I liked looking at the outside of them. Um, but there was one particular thing that I liked. Dad had a Volkswagen Beetle. Anyone have a Beetle? They are cool, but I hated it when I was growing up. I was very embarrassed, but now I wish that he still had it. But it had this exhaust coming out the back, obviously, because it's a car, and it was really quite loud. So it would draw my attention every time. And as a kid, I obviously wanted to touch it. I don't know why. But mum and dad would say, seriously, don't touch it. It's hot. You will burn yourself. But I was such a determined child that regardless of what mum and dad said, I, of course, reached out, touched, and burnt my finger horribly, and then cried and blamed it on mum and dad. But I'm the one that had wise counsel. Another story. Imagine a balloon, and you know how sometimes you can get the sticks that, like, the balloon goes onto the top of and you walk around with the sticks and the balloon. Do you know that? Okay. If you don't, imagine a balloon with a stick attached to it. It's pretty simple. Uh, the idea is, is that you hold the stick in your hand. I wanted to put it in my mouth. And I would run around and play, and mum would say yet again, seriously, you should take that out of your mouth because if you fall, it's like this long. So if you fall, it's going to, yeah, you are anticipating it, aren't you? Yeah. I, of course, didn't listen to mum and run, 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 fall. And it got stuck in the back of my throat. Yeah, it was awful. Uh, but of course, who was to blame? It wouldn't be me, right? Well, it was. I was an idiot. Mum gave me very wise counsel. Don't run with a stick in your mouth because if you fall, it gets lodged in the back of your throat. We all learn lessons. Unfortunately, the stubbornness hasn't really worn off. I think I'm better at it. But this week, my coffee machine broke, which was a disaster. The machine has an on-off button, right? Uh, but that on-off button was starting to wear out. So I would push the button in and it would start to flick on, flick off, flick on, flick off, because the button was really wearing. And then I was starting to smell this like electrical burnt smell. So I thought, right, probably should not, because I would hold the button in a special way and then it would stay on for just long enough. Turns out that was probably destroying the machine. So spoke to a friend at school here and said, oh, I need the new part. He ordered it for me. It was great. Arrived the next day. Now I start to disassemble the coffee machine. And I have my tools, my Allen key, and I open it all up and it is exposed. The internals are exposed. And I don't know if you've ever opened up like an electronic gadget thing, but it is seriously intimidating in there. However, I found the button by smell because it was seriously burnt out. And they were on the back, so it was a button, real simple, press, 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 and then a black little tube thing, and then four plugs, as you can see, very technical, um, four plugs that were on the back. But it was on there for such a long time that those plugs are just the ones that are meant to just go and pull straight off. But these were not coming off. Like I pulled them and pulled them. It wouldn't work. I grabbed pliers, tried to reef them off. Then I thought, am I going to break it? Cindy comes in, sweet, sweet Cindy, uh, who is my wife, if you are unaware. And she looks at it and said, can I just have a look? What are you going to be able to do? Of course, I'll let you look. So she went in and had a bit of a look. And she suggested, maybe you should use... Um, WD-40, that might help. I said, that's ridiculous. 
because why would you put something that's liquidy on electrical stuff? Right, I, didn't, I don't understand how WD-40 works. So no, no, that's ridiculous. So I spent another good few minutes, like I've cut my hands open in, on this internal, like it's really tight space, sharp, like my hands were cut to pieces, very sore by the way. And I called a friend of mine and said, um, it's not coming off, how do you think I should remove the plugs? What do you think um, he suggested that I use? Yeah, WD-40 and guess what, got them off. The WD-40, it worked a treat, and Cindy simply stared, saying nothing, but just knowingly looking on. <laughs> Stubbornness is very easy to point out in others, but in ourselves it can be tricky to notice. The idea is, though, when you've, made, when you've been um, called out, for lack of a better word, you should do something with it, right? That's the idea. Ultimately, we get a choice, though. When something is, uh, when we are confronted, we have a choice. Do we take what that person is bringing to us, or do we avoid it and move on? That is the choice that we get. And this whole idea of stubbornness and confrontation brings us to our character by the name of Saul. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, which again was on page 229. Before we get to Saul, though, we have to step back a little bit. We are introduced to a character that we kind of saw last week, and his name was Samuel. Samuel was, the, was a prophet. He was the mouthpiece of God. He was a messenger of God. And he was essentially the leader at the time. So Israel, the country where this story takes place, was essentially run by this man, Samuel. But Israel did things slightly differently. All of the other countries around, every different country had a different king and their own set of gods. But that was the point. Every other country had a king, a ruler that led them. But Israel was different. They had Samuel, yeah, but he, didn't, he wasn't their king. He was the mouthpiece of God. Israel believed and had firmly held to the idea that God was their king. Does that make sense? So rather than having a man as king, they had God as king. So Samuel was kind of working, being the mouthpiece of God, leading, and hello, buddy. Yeah, yeah he's going to keep coming, so we'll just, yeah. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. Love you. That's okay. See you, mate. Talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. 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 Anyway, um, Samuel, I don't know where I was up to. Uh, Samuel, 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 what were we doing? What did I just say? Thank you, it was the mouthpiece of God. Problem was, he was starting to get a little bit old. So the elders, like the main leaders of the community, come together and have a bit of a chat with, with Samuel to say, like, we need a transition plan here. You're getting to the end of your life. We need to figure this out. And beautifully, these elders were so tactful. And we're going to have a look at what they said. It's Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, okay? And it says this. It's down the bottom right-hand corner of your page. Look, they told him, you are now old. And your sons over the page are not like you. In other words, your sons aren't going to be good leaders. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Got to love the tact of the elders. Saul, uh, Samuel, you are now old. We need to find a replacement. Your own children aren't very good, so we need to find a new ruler. Not very kind, but it's direct. You've got to love that. So what are they looking for? They're looking for this king. And it's interesting because they want this king... So they could be like all the other nations. See, there was beauty to Israel because they were different. The Bible refers to them as being set apart. Rather than having a man rule them, they had God, that they would always seek the counsel of God first and foremost. But now it would seem that right at the end of this man named Samuel's life, at the end of his leadership, they turn to him and say, we don't want to do this anymore. We want you to give us a king. Of course, the next verse, if you're in your Bibles, in verse 6, it says, Samuel was displeased with their request. 
and went to the Lord for guidance. See, that's the way how Israel used to roll. Before making decisions, there was this idea that you would seek God's counsel. You would talk to God before making decisions. And this is what Samuel did. The story keeps going, though, that God ultimately gives the people what they want. They are given a king. And here we are introduced to Saul. Come down into chapter 9 and in verse 2. Good. Did you have the audio Bible on? Well, that's called the audio Bible, but props for having it on your phone. Good for you. We are distraction central this morning. It's so good. What chapter are we in? Chapter 9. Let's have a look. Chapter 9, uh, verse 2. We get introduced to Saul. And this is interesting. Saul is said to be the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders above anyone else. Isn't it interesting that the first thing that the Bible points out about Saul is the fact that he is good looking and very tall? Weird. And it's interesting too, Samuel, if you remember last week, when he goes and selects a new king that would eventually replace Saul, he goes to the one that looked the best, the one that looked the strongest, the outward handsome one, the tall, the big son. He always goes to the ones that are big and strong and look like they're fit for the job. But what we learned last week is God is not interested with what's on the outside. He cares for what is on the inside. But in this case, this man, the tall, the handsome guy, gets selected. So, come down to verse 21. And it says, over the page, Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking to me like this? What's happening is that Samuel goes up to Saul and says, essentially, you're going to be king. And what I love about Saul is his response is one of humility. He doesn't big note himself. He's actually quite humble. Israel is broken up into how many tribes, Bible nerds? Twelve. And according to this verse, which is the least important? Benjamin, right? And which one is Saul from? Okay, so he says, I'm from the smallest tribe and the family that is the least important of all families. What's interesting is that isn't completely true. Come back and look at verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Because it says, there was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of, yep, all of those people, um, the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anybody else. Saul's dad was not just a nobody. His dad was wealthy and influential. So it's interesting, when Samuel comes to him and says, you're going to be the king, Saul actually shuts down the spotlight that was on him. Oh, no, 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 I'm from not a really very important place. Why are you talking to me? His natural response to being asked to be king was one of humility, which is fascinating. And it gets better, because when it actually becomes time for him to be king, uh, come across to verse 22, if you're in our White Bibles, it's page 231. Verse 22 says, Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and placed them at the head of the table, honoring them as the 30 special guests. I'm reading the wrong verse, yep. Chapter 10 is over the page. There we go, page 232. Chapter 10, 22. Got confused too? I did. So they asked the Lord, where is he? And the Lord replied, he is, what's that word? Hiding among where? Baggage. So Saul is about to legitimately be made king. They go to find him, and where is he? He's hiding. Where's he hiding? Among the baggage. Is this not strange to you? Do you find this strange? 
when I read this, I find this to be fascinating. Because here we have a man who is about to be declared king, but the guy is hiding. And not even hiding in a normal space like your house, he hides among the baggage. It's very weird. Imagine looking for him and then Saul like kind of creeps out from behind the bags, oh, here I am. It's a weird image. But what I love about this is Saul doesn't start off from a place of arrogance and thinking he's the man. He starts off from a place of absolute humility. He starts off being a bit intimidated about the job at hand. Why is that important? Because if somebody looks at the job of being king and thinks it's going to be cruisy and a walk in the park, we've got a problem. Why do you think that is? Someone looks at a role like being king and goes, yeah, no problems. Why is that a problem? If they don't see it's a drama, what would you say? Someone said something. Bang on. Yeah, it's good. If you look at a role like being king and you are confident in your own abilities and you will stay confident in your own abilities, there's no need for you to ask for counsel, to rely on God if you stand completely comfortable in who you are and feel that you can completely nail it on your own. What I love about Saul is he has a measured response. Is he capable? Absolutely. Is he ready for the job? Absolutely. But he's still humble and knowing that he can't do it on his own. Does that make sense? He doesn't rock up going, yeah, 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 I'm good. I'm ready. He's scared. He hides because he understands that being Israel's first king is huge. And he would now have to lead this entire nation. Nerves are good because nerves show that you've got skin in the game and that you care. Let me say it again. Nerves are good because it shows that you care and you've got skin in the game. I, every time I do a sermon, I put a number on it and I organize it from my very, very, very first one, which is 001, through to today's sermon, which is 319. So today's sermon is 319. So I have done this 319 times. Nowhere near amount that Alvin would have done or Pastor John would have done. He would have done quite a lot more. But me, in my young age, have done 319 of these sermons. The idea is, is that after you've done it a couple of times, you should kind of just ease into it, right? The nerves should kind of go away and you just stand up and do your thing. I get just as nervous every single time I present. I'm just as nervous today at Sermon 319 that I was at Sermon 001, which was atrocious, by the way. It was eight pages long, which should take about 25 minutes. I legitimately read the thing word for word in five minutes flat. <laughs> 20 minutes of content I read in five minutes flat. So do we grow and do we develop? Absolutely. But do the nerves go away? Absolutely not, because nerves show that we still care. Nerves show that we still think that this is important and we can't do it on our own. Nerves remind us that we need to rest on other people, that we need support, we need help, we need counsel. Here at our church, we do our sermons as a team because we understand that there is power in teamwork and there is power in seeking God. Saul starts from this place. He begins his journey humble and ready and looking to God. Unfortunately, it doesn't stay this way. Imagine the roof of a house and the roof goes up to a point and then drops off. What we see with the story of Saul is a roof shape. Everything's going really, really well. And he starts and he leads Israel strong. And they have military conquests and it's beautiful. He nails it. He destroys his enemies. But then we hit the peak. And this story is the other side of the roof where everything starts to decline. And unfortunately, Saul doesn't pick it up. The story is in chapter 13. And it's in verse 8. So come with me to page 200, 234. 
1 Samuel, chapter 13, starting in verse 8, page 234. It says, Saul waited for seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the offerings himself. Just as Saul had finished with the offerings, Samuel arrived. And Samuel went out to meet and welcome him. Verse 13. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the commandments that the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And here's the thing. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people. Who is that, by the way? David, right? The guy we looked at last week. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. All right, what's going on here? Saul finds himself, and he's picked a fight with the, with the big powers at the time, the Philistines. Saul's army at this point is about 3,000. The Philistines are well and truly double that. So Saul picks this fight on this one occasion. And he gets his crew together. And when all of his army see all of the Philistines' army, they freak out. We see in the text that some of them slip away, some of them escape, others of them hide. So Saul waits on the top of this mountain and he watches all of his troops fall away. He sees everybody slipping and he panics. So he turns to the nearest person and says, quick, let's offer an offering, let's make a sacrifice. Quick, 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 quick. He does it and then Samuel rocks up and shows that he is upset. Why? Why is, this seems like a strange story, doesn't it? Well, we see in the beginning, if we have a look, how many days was Saul expected to wait? Okay, seven days. So there was actually an agreement beforehand. Samuel said, what I want you to do, before you engage in battle, I want you to wait for me. This is important. Before you engage in battle, I want you to wait for me. Wait for me. I'm going to take seven days to get there. When I get there, we will offer a sacrifice together, and then we'll get down to business. That still doesn't help us. What's going on? Two things to remember. Number one, that this culture that we're reading is a sacrifice culture. So we look at this text in 2018, right? We've done this before. Our 2018 glasses. We look at it and think this is barbaric. Why would God want to sacrifice an animal just before they battle? This doesn't make sense. Does that make sense to you? It seems strange, right? However, if we were to look at this text with the vision and the worldview that people back in this time had, it makes total sense. Because what we see throughout the Bible is God meets people and meets society where they are at. He doesn't leave them there. He helps them to take their next step, and then a next step, and a next step, growing them slowly. But when we find this story in 1 Samuel, this story is thousands of years old. Human history is a lot younger the language of these people, the language of this whole region was sacrifice. You connect with God through sacrificing. So God met the people where they are at, took them on this journey, eventually telling them that they didn't need to do these sacrifices anymore. But where they are at this point in time, sacrifice is key because it was a sign that you are looking to God, that God has got your back, that you are trusting in him. Does that make sense? So today it looks barbaric, but back to them it made perfect sense. The second thing to keep in mind is that only very specific people could offer a sacrifice. Who do you think they would be? The priests, right? There would be a very special group of people that would spend their lives as priests offering sacrifices to God. 
So there's a couple of things. One, sacrifice is the language of the people. Two, there were only very, very few people that could do it. They had a special role to play. So a king, for example, couldn't just rock in and offer a sacrifice. This would be a problem. He would be breaking the rules. He would be taking things into his own hands. So what we see is Saul waits for seven days, but still Samuel hasn't shown up on the scene. So he starts to panic. His patience turns to panic. He freaks out. He looks at all of his troops and they're starting to slip away. Imagine you're in this position. Imagine you were the leader. You would probably want to do something too, right? Samuel said, I'm going to come. I'm going to be there in a few days' time. Trust me, I'm coming. He doesn't show up. So you look around and think, I've got to do something. Quick, bring me that sacrifice. I know I'm not meant to do it, but I'll do it. Because maybe that will mean that God will come and he will be with us and he will help us defeat these enemies. So, of course, Saul then grabs the sacrifice. He sacrifices the animal. And at that moment, Samuel comes over the hill. He says, what have you done? See, it's interesting when you look at this. All of the other countries around Israel did sacrifice very differently. See, for them, they would pick who they were going to battle, where they were going to battle, how they were going to battle. They would get all of their crew, their army in line, everything ready. Everything would be planned. And then, just at the last minute, then they would offer a sacrifice, hoping that that would bend God's will towards them. The Israelites did things differently. They started, or so they were meant to, they started with seeking God's guidance and then went and actually made the plans. Do you understand the difference? Everybody else made the plans and then looked at the gods and thought, well, maybe, maybe you can bless us. The Israelites were meant to do it different. They started with God, so the point was, so that everything would flow from God's guidance, God's leading. But what Saul does is take things into his own hands. Things aren't running according to his timing, the way he sees things should happen. It's past seven days, the deadline's gone, my troops are slipping, stuff God at this point, I need to take things into my own hands. Because I know that my army isn't going to start until we've offered this sacrifice. So he grabs it, sacrifices, he takes things into his own hands. And he's turned the ritual that was meant to honor God into this backhanded manipulation that maybe if we do this, we can twist God's arm into being with us. He loses his trust for God and wants to do it on his own. So then Samuel comes, as we read in the text, and he said, what have you done? You've missed the point. You are foolish. So now there is a consequence to your action. You are going to be removed as king. Would you find that quite impactful? Imagine you're in a job and we can kind of understand Saul to a point. His troops are slipping, everything's going wrong, so we can kind of understand it. But he ultimately did things how he thought and he left God behind. So then Samuel comes in and tries to go, well, there's a consequence for this. If that was me, I would stop, uh, ask for forgiveness and try and bring a change so that we could do something different next time. Do you get what I'm saying? Someone confronts you with clear evidence that you've done something wrong. The idea is, is that you shouldn't just ignore that, that you take that on board and you do something. Do you know what Saul does? We see it in verse 15. Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way. And we find that as Samuel left, so too was Saul. Saul just leaves, moves on to the next battle, doesn't mention another thing about it. Samuel leaves... Saul leaves, he moves on. 
does nothing. Nothing from his life changes from this moment. He's just being told that you will no longer be king, and it's like it's nothing's ever happened. It's like it was just a blip on the radar, no big deal. He just walks away. This reminds me of something interesting. Do you remember we looked at last week the story of David, if you were here? And he made a horrendous mistake. He committed adultery with a lady by the name Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. So his way of dealing with the issue is to go and find her husband, kill him, and then after the morning time had left, he went in, got her, brought her to his palace, and then made her one of his wives. Top-going character. This is David, the guy that we looked at last week, who was a bit of a legend. See, both these two are kings, David and Saul. Both of them made a horrendous mistake doing life on their own way, operating from a place of their own perspective. David stuffs up, Saul stuffs up. And then we find, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. In 2 Samuel 12, we get this. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Come on. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock, took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must replay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you, king of Israel, and saved you from the powers of Saul. He used that story of a rich, powerful man stealing somebody else's lamb to help David realize what he had done by taking somebody else's wife from him. And I love that David didn't really click on in the beginning, and, he, and he, he's outrageous, and how dare you, and that person must die. And then Nathan switches it at the end and goes, by the way, that person that you're angry at, it's you. Oh, it's so incredible. And then I love this, because down in verse 13, it says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned. And Nathan replied, yeah, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Check this out. We get two different stories. We get two kings, David and Saul, two kings. They both make a terrible mistake, both of them. But here's the kicker. Both of them get confronted. Saul gets confronted by Samuel. David gets confronted by Nathan. They both have that revelation that they've made a mistake. One of them gets it. One of them owns their stuff, repents, and turns their life around. The other one completely ignores and acts like nothing ever happened. One of them continued to be king and do incredible things. The other one lost. He lost everything. Because what we see in this story is when we are confronted, we have a choice. Do we ignore what's been brought to us? Or do we take it on board, own our stuff, and try and make a change? See, what we get to see in the story of David and Saul is a character study. The reason that we're doing them back to back is because that's the way the Bible does it. And it presents these two different ways of doing life. David is presented as the positive option. Saul is presented as the option you don't want to be. David is an example of patience and one who owns his darkness and allows God to change him. Saul is an example of someone who is oblivious 
to their darkness and lets his dark side run him. See, what's incredible is God doesn't just show up once in Saul's life. He makes a mistake and then God turns his back. No, we see in the story that he shows up again, that God uses Samuel to show up again in Saul's life and give him another chance. We see in chapter 15, it says, And Samuel said to, the, said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. He's already said back in 13 that your kingdom must end. But he shows up saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm going to give you a plan from God, the words of God. Trust them. Follow them. Trust me. Even if you don't understand it, trust, follow it through. And Saul gets this plan from God, and of course he doesn't listen. He sees it through like 90%, follows the plan 90% of the way. And the last 10%, he looks and he actions the plan in a way that he thought was best. And then here's the kicker. Rather than admit the fact that he had fallen short, he builds a monument to himself. Samuel shows up trying to find where Saul is, and he stands by this enormous statue to himself and gives him this, how you going? There's no problems here. Saul was oblivious to the fact that he was trying to play God in his own life. So we have this incredible contrast of David who hears God and allows him to work on him. And then we have Saul who hears God and ignores and tries to do things in his own way and in his own time. How many times have you felt like that? Have I felt like that? where I just want to take control and do things my own way and in my own timing. What we get to see in this pursuit of God, or rather God's pursuit of us, is that it's not all about sunshine and rainbows. And I'll explain what I mean. The easy part of the pursuit of God is the fact that God says that He loves us exactly as we are. That He thinks we're wonderful and that we are beautiful. The tricky part is that because he loves us, he wants to take us to explore the tough stuff. He wants to confront us with our dark side, the things that hurt others and hurt ourselves. And we are given the same option that everybody else in the Bible gets. Here is a confrontation. What will you do with it? God shows up to you and he shows up to me and says, what will you do? Will you take this? run with it, allow me to grow you, or will you ignore and just try and do your own thing? See, I believe that God puts people in our lives to be those confronters. He also, there's also people in life who confront us that are not like the ones that you should listen to, as a side. The people who enjoy picking you to pieces and pulling you down, they are not the confronters that we are talking about. These people, these Samuels, these Nathans, the people that we see in Scripture, are those people in your life that you love and that you respect and who have your best. When those people share counsel with you, that is what you are called to listen to. When it is good counsel, counsel that is in line with where God wants you to go. If someone calls you out, you have a choice shut down, get defensive, ignore it, move on, or listen and ask the question, is there anything in this? Is God trying to show me something? For me in my life, I have two individuals. One is my wife because there is closeness there and there is intimacy there. The other one is, I've said this before, is Nimrod, and he's a bit of a legend and you know him well if you've been here for a while. Nim, we do it on a friendship level and we get up in each other's faces from time to time and it gets real, but it's beautiful because I know that he isn't attacking me. I know that he is my Nathan, that he 
he is my Samuel. And he points things out, my dark side, my dark stuff. And he doesn't just let it run me. He speaks and then I have an opportunity to do something with it. When Cindy says to me, when you do this, I feel like this. I have an opportunity at that point in time to listen and to lean in because I believe God is using that. God, we see in this story, uses people to show up in our lives to help us take that next step. So we have a choice. Do I ignore it or do I listen to it? Tell me if you love being confronted. Probably not. I don't. It's awful. You generally get pretty defensive. But the point is this, you have a choice. We have a choice. The pursuit of God or God's pursuit of us is about taking us to the tough places. He loves us and he's got us and we are invited to do tough stuff sometimes, to evaluate our dark side because you can only effectively work on what you are aware of. You can only effectively work on what you are aware of. So we have people in our lives that confront us. The question is, what do we do with that? Saul gets to the end of his life and he said, I am foolish. I wish I lived my life differently. We today are not at the end of our lives. We are right smack bang in the middle of them. We have an opportunity to hear the voice of God. And in my mind, it comes down to three questions. Number one, what's your dark side? What's that part of you that hurts others and hurts yourself? Let's be real. Like, what's your dark side? because you cannot effectively work on what you are not aware of. What's your dark side? What's your blind spot is another way of putting it. Are there people in your life, trusted people, that help you see that? Do you have a God that openly says, I want to show it to you? Because he does. If you don't know what your dark side is, say, God, I want you to show me the next time that my dark side shows up. Remind me, show me, draw attention to it and help me to go there it is. What's your dark side? Number two, how is God then inviting you to grow in that? And three, Will we trust God, allowing God to lead us, guide us, walk before us, not just for the good bits, not just for the nice bits, but taking us even to the tough places? What's my darkness? How's God inviting me to grow? And will I trust him even in the tough stuff? Because Saul didn't. He didn't. David did. He still stuffed up and made mistakes, but he trusted God even in the tough places. Where do you find yourself this morning? What's your dark side? How's God inviting you to grow? And will you trust him to grow you even in the hard places? Because the pursuit of God is an invitation to love God, love others, and love yourself on an even higher level. To have true respect for yourself, for others, and for God. So the question is, what will you do we all have a choice. Love to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. God, I want to thank you that you give us difficult stories like Saul, where it's not always the nice stuff. It's not always the easy stuff. That's good because it's an invitation for us to grow. But help us to see you first and foremost. Book of Psalms talk about that there is nowhere that we can go where you are not. Help us to know that you are here, that you are with us. That when you call us, to do the tough stuff, that we're not doing that on our own, that you are with us, that it's a safe place. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your challenge, that you're not afraid to get up in our face and work with us, but you come from a place of love. Help us to see you and trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. 
everyone has a story to tell and we'd love to hear yours. So why don't you visit havencampus.church and click on the link that says contact us. And there you can let us know about your story. If you've got any questions or want to know more, why don't you send an email to connect at havencampus.church. We would love to hear from you. And from all of us here at Haven Campus Church, have a great day.